Previously, on Saving Apollo 13. Let's get the camera squared away and let's get all set to burn. We're not going to hack it with a splashdown at 152 hours. Then Bran comes online. Jim, you are go for the burn. Go for the burn. Three, two, one. And Lovell calls shutdown. Roger, shutdown. Good burn, Aquarius. And his really is happy now. The tape recorder keeps playing and it's floating in the air behind him and he drifts over to look out the window. This is another explosion, but it hasn't come from above him in the commander service module. It's come from beneath his feet. Somewhere in the limb, there's been an explosion. This is Saving Apollo 13. The incredible story of NASA's Apollo 13 mission. The spacecraft that failed en route to the moon and the feats of human ingenuity that saved the lives of the three men aboard. How do you restart a spacecraft when it's been switched off in the cold of space for nearly half a week? It usually takes a team of people an entire day, but you have only one person and half an hour to do it. I'm Sean Brady. Forensic Engineer, and this is Episode 5, Steely-Eyed Missile Men. When Jim Lovell wakes, he's very cold, but despite this he's managed to sleep for four and a half hours. He looks over and Jack Swaggart is still fast asleep, and the command module is freezing and it's clammy. Because of the cold, the moisture from the crew is hanging in the air and it's settling on the consoles and instrumentation panels. And all this moisture is penetrating the command module. It's cold, soaking it. And the whole situation is made much more miserable because they're not doing urine dumps anymore. Now, usually when they'd urinate, their urine is dumped overboard quickly. But because Mission Control wants to make sure nothing pushes the spacecraft off their re-entry trajectory, and even something as small as a urine dump could... Word has been passed up saying no more urine dumps, so now they are storing it in bags on board the spacecraft. But Jim Lovell has done tough before. When he became an astronaut and joined the Gemini program, there was one mission that no one wanted. One mission that all the astronauts were trying to avoid. Because one of the missions in Gemini was to prove to NASA's doctors that a person could survive in the weightlessness of space for a prolonged time. So Gemini 7 would orbit the Earth for 14 days straight. This was considered long enough to prove that a man could survive going to the moon and back. So Jim Lovell, along with astronaut Frank Borman, got this mission. It was Lovell's first time in space, and it was gruelling. They were crammed into a spacecraft with an interior no bigger than the front seat of a car for 14 days straight. Borman was the commander, and Lovell was the rookie. Then three years later would be Jim Lovell, again with Frank Borman, as well as Bill Anders, who would fly Apollo 8. This was the first ever manned spacecraft that left Earth's orbit and travelled into deep space. And on Christmas 1968, they became the first humans to orbit a celestial body. To Jim Lovell, this was the most daring thing he'd ever done in his career, and one of NASA's finest hours. And now this, a crippled mission. And not long after the explosion, he told Fred and Jack that the explosion couldn't have happened at a worse time. 
They were so far from the Earth and they still hadn't even gone round the moon. But he knows now that he was wrong. It didn't happen at the worst time at all. If it had happened closer to the Earth, then they probably couldn't have done the direct abort anyway. They couldn't have used the service module engine. If it had happened in lunar orbit around the moon, it could have been very bad. They would have had to try and use the LEMS engine to get out of lunar orbit, which may not have worked because the engine may not have been powerful enough. And the true nightmare scenario was if it had happened when he and Fred Hayes were on the lunar surface in the LEM. Then Jack Swaggart, orbiting the moon in the command and service modules, would not have had his lifeboat, and there would have been nowhere to evacuate to. Jack Swaggart would have died, and Jim Lovell and Fred Hayes would have been dead too, stranded on the moon. So in a way, Jim Lovell now considered himself lucky, because the explosion almost couldn't have happened at a better time. So he gets himself out of his sleeping bag and he's about to go down into the tunnel to the LEM when he makes a decision. It's his biomedical sensors. The glue that attaches them to his body is meant to be hypoallergenic, but it's irritating his skin and he wants rid of them. But to take these sensors off is to break one of NASA's golden rules. And this skin irritation isn't the only reason he wants to take them off. Because what's really starting to irritate Jim Lovell is that everyone in mission control knows his heart rate. He knows he can always calm himself before he speaks on the calm, and when he does, he appears in full control. But he can't stop his heart racing when things go wrong, and it's his business and no one else's. So there and then he makes his decision and he pulls off his biomed sensors and stuffs them in his pocket. Then he makes his way through the tunnel and into the lab. Hayes says morning and asks if Swaggart's still sleeping. Lovell says yes and asks for a status report. Hayes says Houston wants to do a mid-course correction that night, Wednesday night, at 105 hours. And he says they want to do it before the helium disc bursts. And then he says also, looks like we had an event in the descent stage. Lovell says, an event. And now Lovell's worried. An explosion that no one can explain, a shallowing trajectory and a tricky mid-course correction to fix it, and all with an engine that could burst a disc. He doesn't like this at all. Then Brand comes back on the line. And there's only one more thing, Jim. Could you switch your biomedical switch to the position opposite wherever it is now? We're getting a signal, but no data. And Lovell's silent, and time ticks by. Finally, Lovell says, Now... You know, Houston, I don't have the biomed on. And Lovell waits, and he almost dares them to reprimand him. But there's silence, and then Brand simply says, Okay. And it's at this point that Jim Lovell figures that when he gets home, he owes Brand a beer. Wednesday wears on, cold and damp. And now both ships are dark and cold, like a dripping twilight. Then, at 7pm, the comm comes alive with a procedure that no one expects, least of all Jack Swaggart. With his ship, the command module offline, he hasn't had much to do, but now Houston has a job for him. Rand says, while we're getting ready for the mid-course burn, we've got a procedure here we'd like you to copy down for powering up the command module and turning on the instrumentation so we can check telemetry. Lovell says, this is to power up the command module, and Brand says, that's a firm. Lovell looks at Swaggart and says, you following this? Swaggart says, sure, I'm just assuming it's a mistake. 
So Lovell gets back on comm and tells them Swaggart will get some paper and copy down the procedure. Swaggart takes out his pen and signs on. Vance tells him it's a lengthy procedure, about three pages. And it takes half an hour to get it down, and it's complicated and improvised. And it's all designed to get enough power going in the command module so that some data on the command module's current state can be collected by mission control. This isn't enough to bring it online or anything like that. Houston just wants to have a look inside the guts of it to see how it's coping with being in freezing conditions for days. Is it frozen solid? Is it damaged? So Swaggart pulls off his headset and floats up into the command module. He's feeling better now that he's got a job to do. He begins following this procedure. He's throwing breakers, switching inverters and moving antenna. And as he's doing it, he can't see much happening. And he knows that while he can't see much, the ECOM, in this case Cy Labergott in Houston, should be seeing plenty. Or at least he hopes so, and he hopes it looks good. But in order to hear the news, he needs to get back on comm, so he floats back down the tunnel and into a curse, and he pulls back on his headset. And the news is good. Brand says it doesn't look too cold, so it looks like no sweat. Swaggart says, Roger, thank you very much. Lovell watches him go up the tunnel, and he's very happy with the news on the command module. But they still have to figure out how to turn it back on again. But he puts this all out of his mind because right now he's much more worried about the LEM. Houston have finally told him what caused the explosion. It was one of their batteries in the LEM's descent stage. Then there's this burn to correct their trajectory. And Brand comes on calm and runs through the plan. They're coming in shallow and need to do a 14 second burn at 10% trust to get them back on trajectory. But they can't use the computer because Mission Control doesn't want to use the power. So they're going to do it manually. This really is trying to do a precision burn to put themselves back at exactly the right angle for re-entry, and they're doing it blind. And in order to make sure they're heading in the right direction, Brand is suggesting an unusual procedure. Brand says, For attitude, what we're going to want to do is manually orientate the spacecraft to place the Earth in the centre of your window. Put the horizontal line of the optical sight's crosshairs parallel with the Earth's terminator. If you hold it there throughout the burn, the attitude will be correct. Got that? And Lovell says, Hey, sounds just like what we came up with on Apollo 8. And Brand says, Yes, everybody wondered if you would remember that, and by golly, you did. When Lovell was coming home from orbiting the moon on Apollo 8, Mission Control wanted to run a test to see if a ship could still get home, even if it lost its guidance platform by using the position of the Earth and the Sun to orientate itself. And the experiment had worked. The tested procedure was written down and nobody ever really thought it would ever be needed again. But now they needed it, and it would turn out that the person who executed it in the test was also the very person that needed to do it now for real. And Brand continues, And Fred, when Jim has the Earth centred in his window, you should also be able to see the sun in the alignment telescope. It'll be at the very top of the field of view, just splitting the cursor. That will confirm your attitude is correct. And Hayes says, I understand, Vance. Swaggart has just finished putting Odyssey back to sleep when he feels the spacecraft moving. He knows Lovell has taken them out of the barbecue roll. Hayes says, whoa, I've got the art. And he adds, you're getting good at this manoeuvring, Jim. Houston, Jim has the art aligned, and you're right. The sun is in the EOT. Roger, good going, 13, says Jack Lausma, who's just come back on calm. If the attitude looks okay to you, why, I guess it's your choice when you want to burn. And Lovell answers, you guys are getting easy. 
Lovell turns to his and Swaggart. You guys ready to try this? They both nod and Lovell says, All right, Jack, since we don't have any countdown clock, you time the burn with your watch. We're firing for 14 seconds at 10%. Lovell sets the throttle for 10%. His positions himself at his controller. Swaggart is looking at his watch. Lovell says, Two minutes on my mark. Mark. And they wait. And Swaggart watches the two minutes count down. And then one minute. And then 45 seconds. And then 30 seconds. Then he counts one by one. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Lovell presses the engine button and the floor of the lem vibrates beneath them. And Swaggart counts up the seconds. And as they do, Lovell and Hayes tweak the controls to keep the ship in the right place. To keep the earth in the window. And when they're getting close to 14 seconds, Lovell has his finger right over the button. And once Swaggart says 14, he presses it and announces shutdown. Lovell says over the comm, Houston, burn complete. Lousman replies, okay guys, nice work. They are now back in their corridor for re-entry. But it's that night that Fred Hayes gets sick. He'd gotten the first sign that something was wrong earlier. He'd noticed a burning sensation when he urinated. Then the fever had started, and now he feels very aware that whatever's wrong with him, it's starting not long before one of the most dangerous re-entries ever attempted. And the cause of the problem is that they've stopped venting urine. And because they're now storing it, the men are tending to back off on their drinking water. But without enough water to flush out their kidneys, toxins are building up and there's a risk of infection. And that's exactly what's happening to Fred Hayes. This is the beginning of a very nasty kidney infection. Lovell notices how bad he looks and they're discussing it when... There's another explosion. Lovell jumps to look out the window and sees another cloud of icy crystals flying off into space. He looks at Hayes and says... That was the end of our helium problem. It's the launch of Apollo 12, five months prior to the Apollo 13 mission. In command is Jim Lovell's old classmate, Pete Conrad. Everything is going well until 78 seconds into the flight when the Saturn V rocket is hit by lightning. The astronauts suddenly lose the platform in 12's command module. The bottom has fallen out of every reading on every electrical system on board. It looks like they've lost control of their ship. Okay, we just lost the platform, gang. I don't know what happened here. We had everything in the world drop out. Roger. Jerry Griffin is at the flight director's console and Glenn Lunny standing beside him. This is shocking news. It means they could have to abort the mission. And as Jerry Griffin thinks this over, Pete Conrad begins reading down the list of systems that are out. Fuel cell lights and AC bus light, fuel cell disconnect, AC bus overload one and two, main bus A and B out. Jerry Griffin thinks this can't be. Even in their simulations, they've never seen anything this bad. This six million pound, fully fueled rocket may be out of control. But working at the ECOM console is John Aaron. Griffin calls out to him. How's it looking, ECOM? 
and to Aaron it looks like a miss. But then Aaron notices something funny. The amp readings on the ECOM console haven't dropped to zero, which they should have if the fuel cells were knocked out. Then Aaron realises he's seen this pattern before, and he quickly speaks to Jim Kelly in his back room. They've seen it before during a countdown simulation or sim. Now in this sim, a rocket had accidentally tripped a circuit breaker on its telemetry sensors, which resulted in crazy, ratty data. Aaron had rebooted the sensors and all had been well. But this time, it's during a real launch. The rocket may be fine, it could just be its sensors that were knocked out by the lightning. So with the very real possibility of an abort, John Aaron has figured out what's wrong and how to fix it. And it's only taken him 51 seconds. He says, Flight, Ecom, try SCE to Ox. And then Griffin sort of mumbles to himself, SCE to Ox. And then Aaron clarifies what he means by Ox, and he says, Auxiliary Flight. Griffin then doesn't hesitate and passes Aaron's instruction to the Capcom. Apollo 12 Houston, try SCE to auxiliary over. But then it's clear Pete Conrad isn't quite sure what this means either. SCE auxiliary. SCE, SCE to auxiliary. But while Pete Conrad doesn't know where this switch is, Alan Bean certainly does. It's in the bottom row of panel C in the command module. He flicks it and good data suddenly pops up on Aaron's console. And Jim Kelly says, Okay, we got it back, Ecom. Looks good. John Aaron had saved Apollo 12, and he'd been given the title of Steely-Eyed Missile Man because of it. The highest informal praise you can get in NASA. And now Gene Kranz has put him in charge of saving Apollo 13. And the problem Aaron has to solve is this. On Friday morning, the crew will come hurtling towards the Earth at over 25,000 miles an hour, and they will re-enter. John Aaron has to figure out, along with Arnie Eldritch and the Tiger team in room 210, how to power the command module up for two hours so it can re-enter safely. And this has never been done before. It usually takes a team of pad technicians a full day to power it up. Aaron has to achieve the same thing in only 30 minutes using only the very limited power in the command module's batteries, with only Jack Swigert helping. If he fails, the crew die. Now he has two ways he can conserve power. The first is he can decide to not switch on certain systems. If he leaves these systems switched off, then they won't use up his amps. The second way he can conserve power is to leave each system switched off for as long as possible. In other words, by switching some systems on as late as possible, they'll be on for less time and use fewer amps. And it's Aaron's ability to work with people as much as his technical ability that's going to produce a solution. He knows the systems he wants to play with, but he needs buy-in from the Tiger Team controllers. And his style of dealing with them is to downplay what he knows. He pretends he doesn't really know the systems like they do. So in room 210, Aaron begins. He says, Fellas, I know I'm not supposed to know about all your systems, so bear with me and correct me when I make a mistake. But I think I have some ideas about how we can get this ship online when the time comes. And then the guidance and navigation officer interrupts him. John, you can't do it in that time. 
And Aaron says, well now, that's what I taught Bill, but I think if we're willing to make a few shortcuts, we just might be able to pull it off. And the guidance officer says, sure you can pull it off, but can you pull it off safely? And Aaron says, I think just maybe we can. I've got a few ideas here, just rough stuff, nothing set in stone. Aaron pulls out a chart of paper that's covered with crayon markings. And there are pages and pages of this stuff, and there's nothing rough about it at all. This is everything Aaron put together with his electrical systems expert, Jim Kelly. The same Jim Kelly who'd help him save Apollo 12. Aaron's plan is brutal about how much power they have and what they can do with it. For the controllers, this is confronting stuff. So he passes the papers out and he watches them. Aaron is also working through the order the switches are going to be turned on in. So not only does he want to delay turning on systems for as long as possible to save power, he's also constrained by the practicalities of turning them on. As an example, before he can turn on the ship's guidance system, he first needs to turn on the heaters that warm it up. And keeping an eye on all this is Arnie Aldrich's job. He's one of the Space Center's leading command module engineers. So while Aaron will work out how much juice each system will use, it falls to Aldrich to work out the sequence of flicking switches that will actually bring each system online without going over budget on Aaron's power calculation. And over the days that follow, a routine begins to form. Aaron and Aldrich send their plans to the controllers, say the INCO or the ECOM. These controllers usually go a bit nuts when they see what Aaron plans. They say it's a terrible sequence that'll damage or destroy their subsystem. And then the argy-bargy continues until finally they concede that maybe Aaron's and Aldrich's plan is sound and just might work. And once each controller has given their okay on a particular piece of the plan, it goes to Gene Kranz for approval. Then once he signs off on it, it goes by courier to the crew training building where Ken Mattingly is waiting. He hasn't got the measles. He's spending his time locked up on the command module simulator going through Aaron and Aldrich's checklist to make sure it works. He's also checking that it's clear and makes sense. Now, most of the Tiger team do not sleep for 48 hours, and it's now Wednesday night. They've worked solidly on the problem, and it finally looks like they have a power-up procedure that works. But there's one more big discussion to be had before it can be finalised. And Aaron knows that when he starts this discussion, all hell will break loose. They can power up the command module, but they can only power it up if they don't turn on the telemetry. If they do, it'll push them over budget and power, and they won't be able to complete the power-up. But powering up without telemetry data is something that terrifies NASA. They usually like to bring online system after system while carefully monitoring the telemetry data all the time. As far as controllers are concerned, this is the only way to operate. So Aaron takes to the floor to break the news to the controllers. He says, Gentlemen, Arnie and Jean and I have been crunching the numbers every way we can. While the checklist looks pretty good to us, there's one small glitch. It looks like we're going to have to perform the power-up blind. Someone asks, and that means? And Aaron replies, no telemetry. And all hell does break loose. Someone says, John, this is just asking for trouble. And someone else says, but no one's ever tried this kind of thing before. No one's even thought of trying it. And someone says, this isn't just irregular, John. This is downright dangerous. Suppose something starts to overheat or blow. We won't know until it's too late. 
and the arguments go on and then Aaron appears to compromise. He says, wait a minute, how about we try this? How about we set aside a few amps so that when we get all powered up, we switch the telemetry on for just a few minutes and take a good scan? I admit it's not as good as monitoring everything as we go along, but at least we'll have a chance to spot problems and catch them before they do any damage. How would that be? And they argue a little more, but eventually they have agreement, and it's all written down by Aldrich. And over the days, Aldrich will not part with this checklist, and any changes to it will be marked up by him and no one else. This is the very survival of the crew. It runs to 39 pages and has over 400 separate tasks to be completed. Switches to be flicked, breakers to be changed. And Gene Kranz is proud of this team. But it's time for them to get some rest. They're going to need it. Tomorrow they're going to have to communicate the entire procedure verbally up to Swagger. And he's going to have to write it all down. All 400 steps. Kranz looks at his people and says, I want everyone in this room to finish what they're doing and go home. But nobody seems to hear him. Hey, he shouts. The Tiger team is shut down for the night. I expect every one of you to knock off for six hours and I don't want to see you back here till morning. Up in Apollo 13, it's been a day of preparation for re-entry. Fred Hayes and Jim Lovell have been moving items from the Lem Aquarius over to Odyssey, the command module. Now the reason they're transferring stuff from one craft to the other is that the command module's computer will fly the ship during re-entry. But the computer expects the command module to be heavier than it currently is. They never landed on the moon and collected moon rocks, so they're too light. And Houston has also requested they transfer power from the LEMS batteries over to the command module batteries. And this is to top up the power in the batteries, which they'd used when powering down the command module on Monday night. And Lovell doesn't like this idea. Why screw around with the power in the LEM? What happens if this transfer of power causes problems in the LEM? But the Capcom, Joe Kerwin, assures him it's fine. And then he adds, they have no choice. The command module battery is 20 amp hours short. If they want to get home, they need to charge it. It's that simple. And on top of this worry, Jim Lovell has plenty more. Swaggard had checked supplies in the command module and found most of their food was frozen. And his is still sick but he's already made it clear to Lovell that he doesn't want to talk about it, so Lovell hasn't pried further. And then Mission Control had come online and told him that their trajectory was shallowing. Shallowing again, even after Lovell had done their last course correction. Now they'll probably need to do another course correction, but the main engine on the LEM is out because of the burst helium disc, which means the correction will have to be done using the LEM's small thrusters but this will really use up their available fuel. And then there's the dampness. There's water everywhere in the spacecraft. Beads of water are all over the walls, the windows and the instrument panels, just sitting there in zero gravity. All from the astronauts breathing. And Lovell knows that if there's plenty of water on the front of the instrument panels, then there's plenty of water behind the instrument panels as well. And while the connections behind these panels are meant to be waterproof, they're only really meant to cope with normal humidity in the cabin, not running water. 
And when this command module is powered up and it gets warm, running water is exactly what they'll have. Running water in electrical systems. Not a good combination. And it's when Lovell and Hayes are transferring the items between the LEM and the command module that Fred Hayes notices an envelope taped to the top of his personal preference kit, his PPK. Now these kits are for storing any personal items that the astronauts want to bring on the mission. He opens the envelope and inside is a note and a picture of Mary, his wife. There's also pictures of his kids. He opens the note and begins to read. Dear Fred, By the time you read this, you will already have landed on the moon and hopefully be on your way back to Earth. This is to let you know how much we love you, how proud we are of you, and how very much we miss you. Hurry home. Love, Mary. Lovell notices Hayes reading and asks, From Mary? And Hayes says, Hmm, she must have slipped it to whoever was stowing the PPKs last week. Lovell says, Nice. He'd found the same thing from Marilyn in his PPK earlier, too. And it's at this point that Jim Lovell realises he is well and truly sick of this mission. He's bitterly disappointed he didn't get to walk on the moon, and now he just wants to go home. But to get home, they need the checklist to power back up the command module. Without it, nothing's going to happen. It's now Thursday evening, and re-entries in the morning. Lovell wants the checklist to make sure the crew and himself are happy with it. So he's done waiting. He's asked for it repeatedly over the past day, and all he's got were vague answers and even jokes. Lovell hadn't been impressed. Lovell gets on the calm to Vance Brand and says, Just one more reminder that I'm waiting for the power-up procedures you're working on, so I can run through them with the crew and make sure we've got our signals straight. Brand says, Jim, we really are going to get it up to you. And Lovell says, Okay. That's all he says. Just okay. Brand says, We just about have them to hand. Again, Lovell simply says, Okay. And then Brand seems to feel compelled to say something, so he says, We should have them within the hour. And Lovell replies, I'll be standing by. Now, Brand probably has no clue when the procedures are going to be ready, but it turns out he's right. Because just then, John Aaron, Arnie Aldrich and Gene Krantz walk in through the back doors of Mission Control. All three of them look like men on a mission. Aaron is in the middle and Krantz and Aldrich are on either side and he's carrying a bunch of papers pressed against his chest. The three men walk straight to the Capcom's console. Brand gets on the comm. Houston Aquarius? Lovell answers, go Houston. And Brand says, okay, we are ready to read you up the first checklist installment. And Lovell says, all right, Vance, I'm going to get Jack on the line, so stand by. Up in Apollo 13, Swaggart puts on his headset and Lovell hands him the flight plans and a pen. You're on, Jack. Down in Mission Control, a crowd has started to form around the Capcom's console. Jerry Griffin and Glenn Lunny, the gold and black team flight directors, have arrived. Sly Liebergott walks over, the ECOM who'd been on duty in the crisis. Over the loop, they hear Jack Swaggart say, OK, Vance, I'm ready to copy. But Brand then says, 
Okay, Jack, but we have to ask you to wait one minute again. We want to get a copy of the checklist into the hands of the flight directors and e-coms, and it'll take a second or two. And when Jack replies, there's an edge to his voice. Roger, Houston. Gene Kranz gestures to Brand to keep talking. So Brand makes small talk. Say, Jack, how are you doing on command module water? You guys have any of that bagged water left? And Swaggart replies, negative. I went up and tried to repressure the potable tank, but nothing came out. This conversation goes on and spins out. And Brand tries to come up with something else to talk about. And then the back doors of mission control burst open. But it's not someone with more copies of the checklist. It's flight controllers from the Tiger team. They want to be in the room when their work is read up to the crew. So Brand now says over the comm, Jack, we're probably going to have to hold on for about five minutes more. We have some more people coming on to listen to this. It took a lot of people to devise this procedure, and a few of them have been testing it out. So we'd like to have them all on hand while we give you the rest. To this news, Swaggart says absolutely nothing. Nothing. Brand just gets static. And for Brand, this is excruciating. He has a tired and very frustrated crew, and he knows why they are, but he can't do a thing about it. But someone else can. Deke Slayton breaks protocol and comes on the comm. Deke is the chief astronaut, and it had been him who'd offered Jim Lovell his job years before. Deke says, How's the temperature up there, Jack? You guys chopping wood to keep warm? And when Swaggart replies, he is much more upbeat. Deke, it's now about, I think, 50 in the LEM and less in the command module. And Deke says, A nice fall day, hmm? And Swaggart replies, Absolutely. And just so you know, the command module has been stowed per your earlier checklist, with the exception of the Hasselblads, which we'll use to photograph the service module when we let it go. And Deke replies, Roger, got that, Jack? And Swaggart says, The lamb is pretty well stowed too, with the exception of a few things we have yet to bring over. And Deke says, Roger, got that too. Then, finally, an engineer arrives with all the copies of the checklist and Vance begins the read-up. He reads up the 39-page long procedure. Jack Swaggart writes it all down, writes down the checklist he'll need to execute perfectly to bring the command module back to life. Get one step wrong or forget a step or get them out of order and it could wreck the whole thing. And it takes them from 7.30pm to 9.15pm to get it all read up and checked. And then Brand says, Okay Jack, amazingly enough, it looks like we've closed up the loose ends here. And Swaggart says, Alright, if we have any questions, we'll be coming back at you. And Vance says, Okay, we did run simulations and all this, so we think we've got all the little surprises ironed out. And all Swaggart says is, I hope so, because tomorrow is examination time. That night in Apollo 13, no one gets much sleep. They're all cold, but part of the reason Jack Swaggart can't sleep is because a horrible scenario is playing over and over again in his head. He sees himself in the command module, Lovell and Hayes are in the LEM, and it's time to jettison the dead service module. He sees himself reaching out for the switches that will complete the jettison, the SM jet switch. But at the last minute, because he's so tired, he sees his finger drift to the side, 
and instead of flicking the SM jet switch, he flicks the LEM jet switch by mistake. Then the horror begins. The latches holding the command and lunar module together suddenly release and the two ships separate, with him in one and Lovell and Hayes in the other. Both ships suddenly depressurize, and that's it. All killed by Jack Swaggart. All because he couldn't press the right switch. And this just keeps playing over and over in his head until he can't take it anymore. So in the small hours of Friday morning, he gets up. He floats from the lem into the command module. He finds a piece of paper and some duct tape. Then he leans against the bulkhead and writes in large block letters the word NO on the paper. Then he tapes it over the lem jet switch. Then he checks he's put it on the right switch, but even this is not enough for him. He gets Fred Hayes up into the command module and asks him to confirm which switch he's taped over. And a poor, confused Hayes confirms, yes, the right switch is taped over. Only then does Jack Swaggart begin to relax and begin to believe he just mightn't kill someone. And during the night, Deke Slayton comes back on the line and says that given that they're not sleeping, why not take some Dexedrine tablets? They might help. Deke also adds... Wish we could figure a way to get a hot cup of coffee up to you. It'd probably taste pretty good about now, wouldn't it? And Lovell says, Yes, it sure would. You don't know how cold this thing becomes, especially when it's in a thermal roll that's slowing down. Right now the sun's on the engine bell of the service module and not getting down to the limb at all. And Slayton replies, Hang in there, it won't be long now. But Slayton's worried. In three hours, they'll do their final mid-course correction, which they'll power up the limb for, which will warm things up. But three hours seems too long a wait, so he calls the flight director's console to see if they can bring the limb on early. The flight director speaks to the Telmu, who monitors the limb, and the news is good. They have used less power than expected, and they feel they have enough left to power up the limb right now. And the Capcom Jack Lausma says to Lovell, Okay, Skipper, we figured out a way for you to keep warm. We decided to start powering up the limb now. But Lovell wants to be sure they can afford to do this. He says, Hmm, copy, and you're sure we have plenty of electrical power to do this? Before Lausma can reply, Deke cuts in on the line and says, Jim, you've got 100% margins on everything from here on in. And Lovell and Hayes need no more encouragement. They complete the 30-minute power-up in only 21 minutes and very quickly they begin to warm up. Then Lovell grabs the attitude controller and spins the ship around so that the sun falls over the limb. Sunlight streams in the windows. Lovell just floats and feels the warmth on his face. Then he says over the calm, Houston, the sun feels wonderful. It's shining straight in the windows and it's getting a lot warmer in here already. Thank you very much. And as they get warmer, Lovell feels that everything just seems a little more possible now. Right now he feels they can tackle just about anything. And he knows they need to be. Because very soon they'll be tackling one of the most improvised and risky approaches and re-entries ever performed by NASA. At 4am on Friday the 17th of April 1970, The doors open and Gene Kranz leads his Tiger team into mission control. He takes his position at the flight director's console and watches his team fan out across the room. Kranz has believed throughout this entire mission that he'd get Apollo 13 home 
and now they're going to make it a reality. To him, there are a range of manoeuvres that need to take place, most of them very unorthodox and many of them only put together in the past few days. The first thing to do is separate the dead service module from the command module. Once they've separated from the service module, the crew are going to take pictures of it, and these will be critical in trying to work out what happened to it. Then the crew will power up the command module, close the hatch, and cut loose the LEM. Then they'll prepare for re-entry in the command module, Odyssey. Grants watches the maroon team controllers stand up and step back from their consoles. The tiger team take their seats. This is the first time they've been on console since they manned the PC Plus 2 burn on Tuesday evening. But the maroon team don't walk away from their consoles. They're staying to watch. Then members of the gold and black team start to filter into the room too. And with that, the tiger team start to clip on their headsets. And Kranz prepares himself. It all comes down to this. Can the craft survive the brutal re-entry? into Earth's atmosphere. This was Saving Apollo 13. If you liked the show, I'd love if you took the time to tell a friend about it. This show was produced by forensic engineering firm Brady Haywood. Brady Haywood specializes in forensic engineering and investigating the causes of failures. For more information, head to the website bradyhaywood.com.au. This show was written and narrated by me, Sean Brady. It was produced in partnership with the team at Waveland Creative, who helped write, edit and mix the show. Special thanks to everyone who reviewed my scripts, fact-checked and given valuable feedback while producing this podcast. And one last thing. If you've got a complicated idea that you want to communicate with your employees or customers, then making a podcast like this is a really great way to get your message across. And I really recommend Waveland Creative, who helped me produce this show. To talk to the team at Waveland about your idea, head to the website waveland.fm. There's a link in this episode's show notes.